Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American Story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This is where we gather every week electronically to have conversations and let you listen in on conversations about all sorts of stuff. Uh, Of course, on the other podcast, Russell Moore Podcast, we're teaching chapter by chapter through the book of Genesis and answering your moral dilemmas uh, that you have. And so if you have one, uh, send it to me by email or in whatever way, and we'll try to answer it. And of course, looking at the cross in the jukebox, uh, music through the prism of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here on Signposts, we look for those pointers toward grace, what Walker Percy would call signposts in a strange land. And this week, I'm really excited to have with me Scott Sauls, who is pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville and author of the new book, A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. Scott, thanks for being with us today on Signposts. Great being with you, Dr. Moore. Appreciate the invitation. Before we talk about some of the things that you mentioned in your book, one of the things I'm really uh, interested in knowing your perspective on is we're living in a time where even before we came into pandemic, it seemed as though every day, certainly every week, I was talking to or hearing from somebody in Christian ministry of some sort or the other just at the point of exhaustion and breaking point. And that manifests itself in in all sorts of, of ways. What do you think is going on? Are, is this just the way it always is and, and, and we're seeing it? Or is there a unique kind of stress and pressure on people right now? Uh, I really don't know because I'm not a sociologist, but I, I, I do have some some sort of armchair thoughts and that is that outrage, I think, has been an issue ever since the beginning of time when Adam and Eve fell in the garden and uh, they were exposed by the voice of the Lord. Uh, they immediately went on defense and on offense, uh, shifting blame and hiding and covering themselves. And I, I think maybe because we live in an era of social media and the ubiquity of everybody's voice, the realities that have always been true about the human race, that is that we are a divided and divisive people, uh, especially when we are being driven by the flesh or the old man instead of by the spirit or the new man. Uh, We're just naturally divided and divisive. And those realities have been amplified because of the availability and access that we have to each other's outrage and anger. (laughs) And I think we behave in many, in Darwinian ways. In other words, we're we're more concerned with power 
than we are with humility. We're, we're more concerned with winning than we are with, with listening. And uh, I think Luke 18, 9 really sums up the spirit of all of this. Uh, when Jesus talked to some people, gave a parable to some people who were trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on others with contempt. And uh, I don't know if it's really a uniquely new dynamic as much as it's just been amplified. And, and I think that ministers and, and really everybody is feeling that fatigue that you're talking about. What do you say to uh, people who are part of your congregation as as we're living in what can seem like an awfully dark time, public health emergency, crises of every sort, economic uncertainty, and there are a lot of people who find themselves with their anxiety levels going crazy right now and without the ability to maybe distract themselves in ways that that they would have been able to before. What have you found to be helpful in in helping people through this time? Oh, I I don't know how helpful it's been, but I can tell you that my own heart and, and out of that, my own messaging have gone more and more in the direction of God's promises for the future as well as the realities of, of, of the global situation. So I try to, on the one hand, shepherd our people in realizing that whatever we're going through in this pandemic is somebody else's version of paradise. Uh, given that we live in a world where many people, millions of people, are, fear the threat of malaria, tuberculosis, other diseases that, that are killers, HIV, AIDS, that are killers in parts of the world where there isn't access to the kind of health care that we have. And so, and so just, just painting that global reality that, that we are now starting to experience because of COVID-19, a small taste of what the rest of the world, or, or not the rest of the world, but a lot of the rest of the world has always experienced. Uh, and that mm-hmm. is just, you know, Jonathan Edwards died like a month after he became president of Princeton because he, you know, caught a disease and his, his son-in-law, David Brainer died in his twenties and, and on and on and on, you know, before penicillin happened, but theologically, and just in terms of a message of hope, uh, I've been really anchored in the future promises of God, which, which promises a golden age, you know, the, our best years and days always ahead of us and never behind us because of the promises of, of Christ's return. And that, that I think really informs our potential to find comfort in the present day. And of course, we're also encouraging people somehow to maintain human connection, uh, especially those who have to remain in lockdown to, to figure out a way to be in communication uh, with other people, because it's, it's not good for any of us to be alone, as we know. What sorts of changes, if any, do you think are going to happen uh, to the American church in the aftermath of all of this? Oh, boy, your guess is, good as, is as good as mine. Uh, maybe ask Tom Rayner or, or Russell Moore or the Barna folks. Uh, I, I have to wonder, though, if this is not a time of refining, maybe a time of sifting, maybe a time of separating nominal Christianity from uh, abiding Christianity. And I think uh, just anecdotally, uh, really across the land, at least in the United States, it appears that some are really checking out on the church. Uh, I think the the numbers are now 30% of people who were involved with the church on some level before COVID are now completely checked out. And that includes 
being checked out of in-person and online church involvement altogether. And the mm-hmm. millennial generation, that number goes up to 50%. And so I think we're going to see lower numbers, uh, but, but maybe deeper commitments. But I think that all remains to be seen. In, in your new book, uh, A Gentle Answer, my favorite part of the book is uh, the section on anger. And I think the reason for that is because you really take a, a nuanced look and a, a deeper look at anger than I think um, many people do. And I couldn't help but, as I was reading that chapter, I couldn't help but think of uh, a word of counsel that I received one time from one of your mentors uh, in ministry who said to me uh, after a situation I had been through, he said, you know, I think that you probably think that you're not angry because you don't feel angry, but uh, there are there are ways that people can have a kind of under-the-surface anger that they're not even uh, aware of and just watch for that and know how to, to deal with it. And I thought that was really wise counsel because it's true that there are multiple different ways uh, that people can respond to anger, whether justified or unjustified anger. And so I think sometimes we think, when we think anger, we think only a sort of Yosemite Sam type of lack of self-control, but it can be it can be much, much deeper than that. When you're uh, talking about uh, anger and, and you're differentiating between a right sense of anger and sinful anger, how does someone know? Where, where he, he or she fits on that, on that spectrum? Well, I think uh, the whole notion of being quick to listen and slow to speak is an important principle to discern the answer to your question of, of whether or not our anger is in the righteous category or perhaps meandering into or deeply settled in the unrighteous category. I think one helpful question is, am I attacking a problem or am I attacking a person? Uh, because if I'm attacking a problem, it probably means that I'm, I'm operating out of some version of righteous anger, right? Yeah. We are, the Bible says, to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And so part of the positive action of clinging to what is good is hating what is evil, you know, hating and opposing anything that threatens or attacks the good. And, uh, you know, that's a huge part of why God gave us the gift of anger, to to even rage at things like death, as Jesus did at the, the tomb of Lazarus. Or, you know, as C.S. Lewis has written, Christianity is a fighting religion. Uh, you know, and what he, what he was saying was that Christians are equipped with the ability through the Holy Spirit, through the truth of God given to us in Scripture, uh, through the picture that we have of the life of Christ, to discern things to get really upset about. Uh, injustice toward the unborn injustice toward, um, you know, vulnerable populations like the poor or uh, like minorities who uh, are getting uh, disproportionately injured by society or, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, Christians are supposed to notice stuff like that in ways that George Mueller noticed uh, the plight of orphans or William Wilberforce noticed the plight of, of, of slaves and fought for abolition. Christianity is a fighting religion. Uh, and so that, that spirit of that prophetic spirit, you could call it that lion like spirit is deeply Christian. If we are attacking problems, 
But as soon as attacking problems meanders into the neighborhood of attacking people, name-calling, dishonoring other human beings by the way that we talk to them or by the way that we treat them, gossip, slander, all of these other behaviors in order to you know, assassinate personhood, assassinate a character. That's when, when we've probably stepped over into unrighteous anger. And one helpful exercise is to actually ask people at some point if we're in conflict with them, do you feel like I'm attacking a problem here or do you feel like I'm attacking you? Uh, I think that's a helpful question. We might be reluctant to ask it, but but we might be able to see ourselves better if occasionally we do. You talk also right after that section about persecution. And um, one of the things that I, I've noticed is that sometimes the less actually persecuted a person is, the more that he or she can take on a kind of persecution complex uh, or kind of paranoia, uh, thinking yeah. that they're being persecuted uh, all the time. And, and the reverse is true. Uh, sometimes I will see people who are really in awful situations, and I'm not just talking about the sort of um, religious persecution that, that one can see in some places overseas, but people who are in really, really unhealthy family systems or, or church systems or what have you, who just think, I just need to, to do better and to do more in this system. And so how does somebody determine where they are in terms of what is happening that is actually harmful to me and what is just, is just paranoia or martyr complex? Yeah, I will say that, that the true measurement of, of religious persecution, especially the kind that Jesus talked about, you know, blessed are those who are pers- persecuted for righteousness' sake. Uh, you know, blessed are you when people say all kinds of false you know, or malicious things about you because of me, for great is your reward in heaven, right? That because of me component is, is essential as, as our discernment. Um, are we being opposed by somebody because of our, and I will intentionally put this word in there, our humble loyalty to Christ, our humble fidelity to the person and cause of, of, of Christ? Uh, or are they opposing us because they discern that we are antagonistic, that we are being disrespectful, uh, that we are not, uh, as Peter urged us to do, treating people with gentleness and respect as we give reason for the hope that we have in us. And, uh, you know, again, the feedback loop from the people you're actually in conflict with is helpful, uh, can be helpful. But true persecution is when, you know, we we're in a, a situation and we're seeking to be faithful to Christ. And in that faithfulness, the, the beatitude attributes, uh, you know, poor in spirit, uh, the meek, etc., are shining through the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which, by the way, all of which are opposite of the partisan political spirit. I realize I might offend some people by saying that, but partisan politics and Christianity uh, really are not good bedfellows. They, they don't support one another very well. Uh, and, and so if I'm being attacked as a gentle, humble person, <laughs> as, as Christ was, who was gentle and humble in heart, 
as I'm being attacked or if I'm being attacked for speaking the truth in love and not in a, in a fiery, you know, raging way, but in love in order to win people, not in order to put them in their place, then maybe I'm, maybe I'm being persecuted. One thing maybe I'd like to say, and this will be the last thing I say, I actually love to hear your thoughts uh, either now or some other time on this question. It's, it's such a fascinating one, but I, I, I think in the land of the free and the home of the brave, where, where we've had so much uh, religious freedom uh, for the, the history of our nation, we, because that's the air that we breathe, we think things like losing our tax break uh, on tithing, for instance, would be persecution. Maybe it would be on some level, but really what it, what it actually would be would be the revocation of a privilege. Uh, or, you know, a lot of ministers think, well, if they take away the minister's housing allowance, that would be persecution. No, that would actually be the removal of a privilege that nobody else has in our land. And, and so we need to discern between that and being hanged on a cross, uh, like Jesus and many of the disciples were, or, and being sawn in two, like uh, Isaiah was, or, or being imprisoned like, like pastors in China are today, and, and, and so on. I mean, there, there's certain levels and degrees of persecution. So those are my thoughts. As one who's never really been persecuted, that's my expert word on these things. I, I've never really been persecuted to that degree. So who am I? But if, if you're in... Um a workplace, uh, for instance, and uh, you, you have someone who's being bullied and intimidated uh, in that uh, in that workplace. I mean, obviously, our response is not going to be, "Well, it could be a lot worse." You're, you're not being killed. Uh, we're going to recognize that someone's being treated treated poorly. So, how do you help people to to recognize? Uh, when that is the case, because there are many people that I know where um, I have had people misapply, for instance, uh, where Jesus says endure persecution in situations where they shouldn't be there. I mean, I've known um, women who have been in uh, domestic violence situations, and, and they're saying, well, won't I be unfaithful to Christ if I leave because Jesus says we should expect persecution, and I have to say, no, you need to get out of that place and into and into a place of safety uh, for you and for your children. And to a lesser degree, uh, I've seen the same thing go on where uh, someone lives in a works in a workplace where there's routine sort of intimidation of people because they're different or because they're not in that inner ring, uh, C.S. Lewis, or so forth. And they start to just believe this is normal rather than seeing, wait a minute, this is, this is something that actually I shouldn't be a part of or I should work to change. How, how do you know wh- where that, that line is? Yeah. So I, I thought your last question was about the martyr complex. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, this, this, this conversation, you know, is, is, is kind of another angle on, on the same conversation. And, and, you know, I think you're, you're absolutely right that, if there's any form or any level or degree of unjust treatment, you know, wh- whether you're being, you know, sawn into uh, or whether you're being mistreated for, um, for identifying as a Christian or a follower of Christ. Or, or here's an example. When we were in New York City, I remember a friend of ours got fired after a smear campaign in his law firm. He was a, a compliance attorney. And his job was to help 
keep uh, a certain uh, financial institution client compliant with federal and state law. And uh, it, it be, a pattern emerged where uh, this client, which made a lot of money for the law firm, uh, just kept pushing the limits and, and wanting to cheat and fudge and, and hide um, unethical financial transactions and behavior. And he said, I, I can't in good conscience uh, just overlook this. And he started to speak to it. And then he just got filleted. He had his reputation slandered and destroyed, and, and it, was, it was awful. But I, but I remember saying to him, and, and this is how, you know, I guess a good way to minister to somebody, at least I thought it was, well, I said, look, uh, why don't you and I, in the middle of the night, go to the building where, where this, this financial institution is, and we'll just set the place on fire. And I, I was just messing with him, right? Uh, but, and just trying to make him feel a little bit seen and better. And, and he turns, it turns back to me, and he has this serious look on his face. And he says, no retribution. And, and that was a really powerful moment mm-hmm. because – he was simultaneously um, working deeply, you know, deep gospel stuff in his heart to be a forgiving person after he's been just completely mistreated while at the same time walking away from the job and fighting for his good name, uh, which which he did. And so, you know, I think those two things, it gets really complicated when you're a real life situation where you've been deeply betrayed and, and the call of the gospel is to forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And what I take that to mean is it's, it's God's job to figure out retribution and, and justice, and it's the state's job, you know, in certain instances. It's our job to release that into the hands of God, you know, as Jesus did, and trust ourselves to the one who judges justly and move on with boundaries and with proper self-protection and get out of there. Uh, if you're in a situation where you're being oppressed, absolutely. You you talk about in the book uh, betrayal, uh, and I, I think everybody uh, has to some degree or the other experienced, maybe betrayal might be too strong a word uh, for what some people have experienced, but they've certainly experienced people who've disappointed them uh, at the at the least, I guess we could say. And and I've known a lot of people who they they're, they're not in any way unchristian about forgiveness um, and about extending forgiveness, about about all of those things. But they have difficulty uh, learning to trust again. And so as one person I talked to not long ago who had been really disappointed uh, by, by someone that he trusted, and he said, uh, I've forgiven these people, but I don't know how I'm ever going to really be able to trust anybody again for fear of it repeating. Have you have you experienced people like that that, that you're ministering to? How how do you help them? Yes, I mean, in so many years, uh, yeah, I mean, almost thirty years now of pastoral ministry, so many of these um, instances present themselves. You know, children who are living with with you know family of origin abuse stories in their adult years, trying to make sense of it and process how they're supposed to honor their parents, you know, <laughs> with that backdrop, uh, or spouses who've been betrayed, infidelity, um, you know, workplace abuse. Uh, we've, we've seen it all. We've, we've ministered uh, amidst all of it. 
And the bottom line is forgiveness is assumed. Trust must be earned. Forgiveness is, is the call of the Christian. Uh, and again, I, I think we, we really, it's very important that we have an accurate biblical understanding and view of forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean rolling over, being a doormat, continuing to make yourself vulnerable to somebody who is threatening to you uh, and has shown no sign of remorse for what they've done to you before. Um, Again, boundaries, very important. Protections, very important. Uh, Forgiveness in that situation is is when we do the work in the heart uh, of of asking the Lord to lead us and to take us to a place where we are at, at rest with not ourselves retaliating, with not taking matters into our own hands. It's like uh, Dr. King said, you know, you can't fight violence with violence. You can't drive out hate with hate. Only love can do that. You know, posture of forgiveness. John Perkins talks about this more recently from the same era. But at the same time, you don't trust somebody who's sucker punched you <laughs> until they give you a good reason over time to believe they're not going to sucker punch you again. Uh, and you know, that, that applies to infidelity in marriage. Let's say that the couple decides we're, we're going to, we're going to try to reconcile after infidelity has happened. Well, the, the offended party forgives the offender, but it's going to take a good bit of time for trust to be restored. Bruises, they don't stop hurting, you know, when the person who put the bruise there says, I'm sorry. Um, it, it, it takes time. You know, one of the things that I certainly see a lot all the time, both in myself and in other people, and I'll bet you do too, is a a sense of being willing to receive uh, forgiveness. So uh, a lot of people, I, I just talked to someone this week who said, I know that God has forgiven me of my sins, and, and I know in my mind that God's not angry at me. Um, but it's hard for me to, to, at the heart level, know that God isn't angry at me. God's not uh, looking to to get me, that God really loves me. How do you you help people to see themselves as truly forgiven and loved by God? For me personally, because I I admit, I I not only help other people with this, I struggle with it myself uh, to believe the things I preach about the Mm -hmm. grace of God in Christ and his fierce love for us. Where Where I go to personally for comfort, is in Romans where it says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, or as Ephesians says, while we were still dead in our transgressions and sins, uh, that's when Christ died for us. That, that's when he made himself subject to the violence and, and the forsakenness that the cross represented. And, and that was me at my worst. And so if I sin or demonstrate imperfection, as one who has been now redeemed <laughs> and now been adopted and now been made a son uh, of God, you know, how much more ought I to consider how he loves me now? If that's the way he loved me then, when, when he was willing to die, for, give his very life, his whole life for me in the way that he did when I was at my worst, how much more in my redeemed, adopted state? And, and, I think we really do mistake the heart of God when we assume that, that we have so much more ability to disappoint him than we do to, to draw his heart, you know, through our weakness and sorrows and our sins, that that actually 
causes him to move toward us. I think of the father in the prodigal son parable. He's just waiting eagerly for the son to come home. And the first sight he, uh, he sees of his son, he, he refuses to allow the son to give the, the speech. Uh, he just embraces him and, and, and dumps affirmation on him as if to say, when you're at your worst, when, when you're at your lowest, that's actually when I'm drawn the most to you, not with scorn, but with love. I, I think Spurgeon put it really well as sort of a summary statement. He said that God loves to forgive sin infinitely more than we love to commit it. Or as Paul said, you know, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But the trick to your point is, is how do our hearts get to the place where we're, we're really ready to receive that and, and live out of it? You know, as, as, as one writer says, to define ourselves radically as the beloved of God, because every other identity is an illusion. Our guest is Scott Sauls, pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church, and the book is A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them, published by Thomas Nelson. Scott, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us in Signpost today. You're very kind to have me, Dr. Moore. Thank you. Thanks for listening uh, today to Signpost. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Cast, wherever you listen. And also check out our other uh, podcast, just the Russell Moore Podcast over there. And one of the things that really help is if you leave a review. That helps other people to find us. And so until next time, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signpost. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.